0: we find the words John to the seven churches that are in Asia. When we slide down in chapter 1 to verse 11, we find Christ giving his commission to John and telling him to write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then beginning in verse 12, we find John's vision of Christ in all his glory, and Christ is standing in the middle of seven lampstands. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, we find that those seven lampstands are the, are the seven churches. And then when we come to chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters addressed specifically again to these seven churches the question that naturally arises about this point is why would such a prophetic book as this which deals with future world events be written to seven churches in Asia Minor? I mean those churches aren't even around anymore and why did John write to those specific seven churches when in fact in Asia Minor we know of at least 12 churches that existed there some of them more dominant churches than these churches. Colossae, for instance, was in the same area. No letter was written to Colossae. Why did he write these letters, or why did he write this book to these seven churches in Asia Minor? Well, if you remember, we've mentioned already that seven is a key number in the book of Revelation. It's used at least 54 times, and seven seems to be the number that identifies with the idea of completion, or of fullness, or of perfection. And most Bible teachers agree that these seven churches in some way depict for us the complete or the full church. In these seven churches, we have a representation of the whole universal church. Now, there are many ways that that teachers try to uh, define that, and let me just suggest for you two predominant views. One is what I call the chronological view, and that is that these seven churches give us a chronological perspective of the entire church age. In these seven churches, we see the history of the church portrayed prophetically, each church representing a stage in the church's development. For example, the church at Ephesus is the apostolic church, the church at Smyrna is the post-apostolic church, and so on, right down to the present. and the present day, we are in the Laodicean church, which represents the church in the last days. Now, I have have a few problems with that view. Uh, Number one, I have a problem with the fact that you will find churches of all seven styles in every era of the church. In fact, even in the early church, it's hard to identify the early church as just the Ephesian-type church because you have very good churches like... Philippi and and Thessalonica, and you have some churches that aren't so good like the church at Corinth and the church of Laodicea, all represented in that same time period. But a second problem I have with it is even, even more difficult for me, and that is the fact that I can't understand how the return of Christ can be viewed as imminent as being able to happen at any moment if this whole prophetic course for the church had to be carried out. In the church's history. How could John write and say that Jesus is coming very quickly if in fact this whole course had to be carried out through the various churches and through the various time periods? I have a problem with that. I also have a problem with with those who try to fit this into the history of the church and how they do that and 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 many commentaries have problems trying to make that fit. I prefer a second view and that's what I call the cross-sectional view. And that is that these seven churches give us a cross-sectional view of the church at any given time in its existence. These seven churches are representative of the different types of churches that exist in every age. And in any era of the church universal, you will find churches that fit into one of these seven categories. And though every individual in a church is different, churches still fall into categories that make them unique. You can go to one church and it'll be very different from another church. And if you've got a majority of Ephesian type people, you're gonna have an Ephesian type church. And if you've got a majority of Laodicean type people, you're gonna have a Laodicean type church. And as we go through these seven letters in Revelation chapters two and three, I think it'll become very apparent that this is a cross section of the church today because we'll be able to see and pick out churches like Ephesus and like Sardis and like Laodicea around us today. And I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, which church are we? Or maybe more personally, since individuals make up a church, if all the members in the church were like me, what kind of church would it be? Which one of these churches best identifies where I'm at. Well, the church we want to consider this morning is the church in Ephesus, and we see it in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 to 7. Notice verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, John is the writer of the book, and most of the time in this book, he's going to be writing what he sees, as Christ commissioned him to do in chapter 1 and verse 11. But in chapters 2 and 3, John is merely taking dictation. John is merely the secretary. The correspondent is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. And this is the one that John just saw in chapter 1. He's the risen, glorified Christ. And he introduces himself at the beginning of each letter to each one of these churches by alluding to a particular aspect of John's vision in chapter 1. And here he's addressing the church in Ephesus, and he calls himself the one who walks among the seven lampstands. Now in chapter 1 and verse 20, we're told that these seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so Jesus, the one who said in Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, is here seen walking among the local churches, and he's caring for them, he's observing them, he's evaluating each local church. And that's kind of a somber thought, to think that the Lord Jesus is walking among the local churches, and he's observing, and he's watching, and he's seeing what happens. He's evaluating us. And then he calls himself the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And again, in chapter 1 and verse 20, we're told that these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I won't be dogmatic on who these angels are, but there's two basic possibilities, and one is that they could be angels. That was a tough one, wasn't it? Uh, because, well, this word this word means messengers, and it's used in Scripture of human messengers as well as angelic messengers so it could be an angel it could be a human being Uh, if it's an angel it, it wouldn't be that surprising because throughout the book of Revelation this word is used of angelic beings and in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10 we're told that each child has an angel watching over it in the book of Daniel which John refers to at times we find that every country has an angel watching over it so it shouldn't surprise us then that each local church would have an angel watching over it. But it may also mean a human messenger. And in that case, it may be that uh, seven individuals had come to visit John, who in fact became the messengers who took these letters back to those seven local churches. Uh, in some churches where they have pastors, uh, I've seen commentaries who define this angel as the pastor and I think pastors like that because uh, you know, they, it, it's addressed to the pastor and he gets to be called an angel and a star. And that's pretty flattering. Uh, but I, I don't think that fits in because it doesn't fit in with the, the church government throughout the whole New Testament. And so I think the better, better way to interpret this is, is uh, it's either an angel or it's a human messenger. And I tend to think it's a human messenger because the message is addressed to the angel And then the message is to repent. And you'll never find anything addressed to an angel in the way of repenting. That's always an address to a human being. And so I prefer to take it that way. So you have Christ walking among the churches, the lampstands. He's holding in his hand these seven messengers, these stars. And he makes his evaluation and he sends it by John to each messenger, to each church. And the first church is the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a fascinating city. It was the capital of Asia, and it was the most important city of these seven. Economically, it was a harbor on the Aegean Sea, had a sophisticated system of docks. It was a major trade route with four heavily traveled highways extending out from it. It's been called by historians the marketplace of Asia. Politically, it was a free city which meant there was no Roman garrison there. There were no soldiers there to oversee things. They were deemed responsible to govern themselves. Socially, they held athletic games there comparable to the Olympic games that attracted huge crowds each year. Religiously, it was the center for the worship of Artemis or Diana. In fact, the temple of Diana was in Ephesus And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was made totally out of Persian marble, 425 feet long, 250 feet wide. It had 130 hand-carved columns, 60 feet high. Quite a place. Their worship included prostitution, orgies, mutilation. And they were also big on idols. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 35, Uh, the people at Ephesus talk about the image that fell down out of the sky. And apparently they believe that Zeus had thrown this, well, maybe tossed this image down out of the sky to them so that they would have this image of Diana. It may have even been a meteorite that fell out of the sky. They found it, formed it into this idol, placed it in this temple, built this temple around it, and so forth, and worshipped uh, this image of Diana. And they also sold little idols You could buy little idols in the marketplace and you could take them home or you could hang them around your neck or you could place them on the dashboard of your chariot. Uh, In that environment sprang up the church at Ephesus and Acts chapter 19 describes how Paul started the church. He began teaching in the synagogue until they ran him out and then he went to teach in the school of Tyrannus and Paul stayed there three whole years and God performed many miracles through Paul there in Ephesus, and people's lives were being transformed. In fact, many people got saved in Ephesus who had been into magic, who had been into witchcraft, and were told in Acts chapter 19 and verse 19 that they brought all their books of witchcraft together and they burned them, and the sum total of all the books that were burned were the equivalent of two million dollars. In fact, so many people were getting saved in Ephesus and getting rid of their idols that the economy was suffering. And so the silversmiths who made the silver idols joined forces with the other tradesmen and they ran Paul out of town. So this was a church that had a great beginning. It was founded by Paul. It was spiritually strong. They had an impact on the whole city. They later had teachers like Timothy and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. They were grounded in the truth. And Christ has something to say to this church in Revelation chapter 2. And we can divide his message into four parts. His commendation, his condemnation, his counsel, and his challenge. First of all, we see his commendation. And as Christ evaluates the church in Ephesus, he has four general things to say by way of commendation. First of all, he commends them for being a working church. Notice verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil, and perseverance. This is a church that labored, they toiled, they sweat, they were energetic, they were working for God. One of the first things you would notice if you came to the church at Ephesus was that everybody was busy and things were happening and things were getting done and service for Christ was not just something they talked about. It wasn't just something tacked on at the end. Ephesus was sweating for Christ. They weren't looking for the box seats. They weren't looking to be entertained. They weren't looking to be served. They were making things happen. They were spending themselves. They were working for Christ. So he says, first of all, I commend you for this. You're a working church. Secondly, he commends them that they were a separated church. Notice the end of verse 2. He says, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false he says you're a separated church they were separated two ways they were separated morally and they were separated doctrinally first of all they were separated morally he says you cannot endure evil men so this was a church that didn't tolerate sin they dealt with sin they put sin out they knew the scriptures that says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And unlike Corinth that had sin in their midst and was proud of it, they put it out. They dealt with it. And so he commends them for that. But not only were they separated morally, they were separated doctrinally. And he says, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. This was a church that defended the truth. When someone came in and said, I'm an apostle, they checked him out, and they found those who were false. You know, it's interesting if you read in Acts chapter 20, when Paul came to Miletus, he gathered to him the elders from the church at Ephesus, and they gave him a message there. It was his last message to them in Acts chapter 20. And he said this in verse 29 of Acts 20 After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, Be on the alert. And those Ephesian elders had listened to Paul. They had stayed alert. They got rid of false teachers. They confronted sin. They were a separated church. And as Christ looks on, he commends them for this. They were separated morally. They were separated doctrinally. They were separate from sin, and they were separate from false teaching. And then he has a third thing to commend them for, and that is that they were an enduring church. Look at verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. This is a church that endured. They hung in there, they didn't give up. They weren't fair weather Christians. They had weathered the storms. They didn't quit. They didn't burn out. They didn't faint. When perseverance, when persecution came from the community around them. They stood firm. As the years went by, they were a church that endured. In fact, they were now a second generation church with many of the original members having passed off, off the scene and they remained faithful. Christ looks on and he could, he could say, in essence, you're a rock, you're a pillar. You've endured, you've, persecu- you've persevered, I can count on you. In fact, Christ even looks beyond what he sees on the surface and he looks at their motive. And in verse 3, you see that they endured for my namesake they weren't operating out of selfish motives they weren't working for some reason of their own they were doing it for my name's sake, says Christ they were working and enduring for the Lord and then fourthly Christ commends them for being an autonomous church and to see that commendation you need to slide down to verse six and he says, "'Yet this you do have, "'that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, "'which I also hate.'" They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and God hated those deeds, too. You say, well, who were the Nicolaitans? Well, history is fairly silent about who these people were. All we really have is the name, but we can learn quite a bit from this name. The name Nicolaitans comes from two Greek words, one is Nike, which means conqueror, and the other is laity, which means common people. So the word, when we put it together, means those who conquer the laity, those who conquer the common people. And many Bible commentators believe that the Nicolaitans initiated the clergy laity gap. The exaltation of a clergy class up here and a laity class down here. They established an ecclesiastical order, sort of a power hierarchy in the church. You know what? God hates that. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, I hate it too. There is no clergy laity in the church. There's no elite class of people up here somewhere and the rest of us down here. That isn't true. There is no one who conquers the common people In God's church. In fact, in God's church, every Christian is a minister. And a minister is not a Lord to lord it over other people. He's not someone who reigns over others. He's a servant in the church of Christ. And so Christ commends them in that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and he says, I hate those deeds as well. And a little later we'll see the church at Pergamum in chapter 15 or in verse 15 of chapter 2, who had really grasped onto this teaching of the Nicolaitans and had it as a very part of their church. The church at Ephesus hated it, and Christ commends them for that because he hated it as well. And so Christ has many commendable things to say about this church. It was a working church. It was a separated church. It was an enduring church. And it was an autonomous church. So, you know, that, that's a pretty impressive church. That's a pretty fantastic church. They had outstanding service, outstanding morals, outstanding doctrine, outstanding commitment. In fact, they even had outstanding church government in their church. So that's got everything I'm looking for in a church. If I came to that church, I'd probably say, this is the church I've been looking for. This is the one I want. You know, I imagine as the messenger came to Ephesus and began to read this letter to the congregation, they were feeling pretty smug as he went over this list of commendations until he got to verse 4. And verse 4 is the condemnation. And Christ has only one negative thing to say about this church. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You've done all these commendable things and I commend you for those things, but I have this one thing against you that you've left your first love. This church had fallen out of love with Jesus. And their hot hearts had grown cold. And they were serving Christ sort of in automatic pilot. And what had at one time been a labor of love and passion had become a service of performance. They were now performing in their Christian life. The warmth was gone, the fire was gone. The flame had waned. They were cooling off. They were still busy, very busy, but they had lost that burning love for Jesus. And they had to listen to his piercing words as he said, you have left your first love. And that's tragic. Those are words we should never want to hear. You know, the one thing that Jesus wants from his church, is love. And when asked which was the greatest commandment of all, Jesus very quickly answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind because that's what he desires above all. And it wasn't only for Peter's sake that Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee wanted to find out from Peter, do you love me? Because that's what he desires above all and i just imagine that it brought great pain to the heart of the lord jesus when he looked ahead to our day and he told the disciples in matthew 24:12 that in the last days the love of many will grow cold because that's what he desires above all and when our love grows cold it breaks his heart and so jesus looks at this church at ephesus with so much going on and so much activity, and he says, this is what I have against you. You've left your first love. Now what does it mean to leave your first love? Well, you've probably seen a Christian when they first come to love Jesus, and when love first springs up in their heart and how fresh it is and how hot it is and how real it is, and they're overwhelmed by the grace of God and they're thrilled about being a new creation and they're ecstatic about this greatest of all relationships that they now enjoy. And then the years go by and they get all their doctrine in the right slots and they get in the right pew and they get in the right situation and they've got all the right answers and they've got all the right footnotes and everything's organized and everything's orthodox and everything's mechanical and they're still busy, and they're still committed, and they're still serving. They just don't have any love. They've just left their first love for Jesus Christ. They started out like Mary, and now they're a lot more like Martha. They used to find themselves sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus and just adoring Him. And now they find that they're too busy and they've got too much responsibility, and they're too busy serving Christ, and they're too fussy, and they're too worried about everything that they're doing. They're doing everything for Christ, and they're doing nothing with Christ. They're doing everything but returning His love. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If I have the tongues of men and of angels, and if I have all the gifts, And if I sacrifice all my possessions, in fact, if I sacrifice my life and have not love, I am nothing. So in Christ's condemnation against the church in Ephesus, it's brief, but it's the thing that mattered to him most. He says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Fortunately, he doesn't leave them there because he gives them his counsel in verse 5. And he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Here's the counsel. Christ gives them three steps. He says, number one, I want you to remember. And to correct any departure from God, the first step is always to go back to the place of departure. Look back and remember the warmth of that initial love Remember how it was, says the Lord Jesus. You wives probably say that to your husbands all the time. Remember how you used to do this. Remember how you used to do that. You know, they now videotape the weddings. So now all she has to do is plug it in the VCR. Say, remember what you said? Well, Christ is saying, remember. Go back in your mind to the time when you first placed your faith in me. That wonderful love relationship that we enjoy. Remember that. Faith A. Mills wrote a poem about first love. See if you can remember this. She says, I climbed up the door and shut the stairs. I said my shoes and took off my prayers. I shut off my bed and I climbed into the light and all because he kissed me goodnight. First love. And Jesus calls the church his bride, and he expects our love. And if yours is a cold, clammy orthodoxy, Jesus is saying, remember. Remember the thrill when I first became real to you. Remember. And then there's a second step, and that is repent in verse 5. You say, do Christians need to repent? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do Christians who are obeying and serving and studying and enduring need to repent? Absolutely. You know, we need to agree with God about where we're at. And if this is where we at, we're at, we need to repent. We need to agree with David in Psalm fifty-one, twelve, when he prayed and said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'm not where I need to be. Bring me back. I repent of where I'm at. We need to say, Lord Jesus, I've turned my affections away from you and I've grown cold. And my Christian life is just a performance. And I'm going to turn around. I'm going to turn back because that's what repentance means. It simply means to turn around from where I'm at to where I ought to be. Lord, I've got my affections facing in the wrong direction. I've got my affections on everything else but you. And I repent. I turn around and I'm coming back and directing my love back to you. Remember where you were and repent. And then thirdly, repeat. And that's in the middle of verse five. He says, do the deeds you did at first. Do those things that characterize your life as a new believer. Do those things that flowed out of your love for Christ initially. You know, some of us might feel a little silly doing some of the things we did as a new believer because now we consider ourselves too sophisticated and too mature. And the truth is we're probably too cold and too indifferent. And Christ is saying, I want you to remember and I want you to repent and I want you to do those things you did at the beginning when you had all that exuberance and all that sense of release and that sense of cleanness and that sense of acceptance and there was that... First love taking place. Now, I was sitting last night thinking about this verse. And I was thinking about my own life. Uh, and I was remembering back to the beginning. And I was remembering a time when, when I was out in Colorado. And uh, probably from the age of 12 in my life until I was 20, I never showed any emotion. I got very hardened. Uh, nothing touched me nothing affected me and I was very defensive Uh, in fact I got involved in drugs at about the age of 19 and for two years very heavily involved in drugs had very much artificial emotions and so my emotions really were never there they were always very subdued and I committed my life to the Lord and I was out in Colorado and I was out there with Bill Cobb and we went to a church out there and I remember sitting in that church and uh, Bill was not a believer at that time We were sitting in that church and we were singing a song, a hymn. And the song was, My Jesus, I love thee. And it goes like this. The third verse says, I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. And for the first time in about eight or nine years, the tears started just flowing down my face. And it was such a a neat thing, and such a releasing thing for me. And and I was sitting there in that church, and and I don't know if Bill even saw it, but the tears were just flooding down my face. As for the first time in my life, I could say, Lord Jesus, I do love you. And that love relationship was really established there. And I didn't care what anybody thought, what anybody cared about it, there was a relationship that I enjoyed with, Jesus Christ. And if I can't say that today, if I can't say, if ever I've loved you, Lord Jesus, it's now, then I need to remember, and I need to repent, and I need to start repeating the first deeds that flowed out of my love for Christ. And if you think that that love isn't important to the Lord Jesus, then just look at the end of verse 5. He says, or else, I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He's talking to a church that's busy working, serving, obeying, holding to the truth of God. He's talking to this church and he's saying, I got one thing against you and that is you've left your first love. And if you don't repent, I'm going to blow your light out and I'm going to take your testimony away. You know what? That happened in the church at Ephesus because the first step away from Christ is to lose your first love. And once you've lost your love, pretty soon you've lost your life. And then it was a dead church, and then it was gone. And there is no church there today because the honeymoon ended. And when the honeymoon ended, the church ended. Finally, Christ gives His challenge in verse 7. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He gives an admonition and he gives a promise. And at the end of each one of these letters, we're going to find that he gives a promise to the overcomer. And the overcomer we're not told who the overcomer is here, but John, in another writing, in 1 John chapter 5, and verse 5, tells us who the overcomer is. He says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The believer is the overcomer. And so he has a promise attached here at the end of this letter, as he will at all of the letters. And he says, In this case, he who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise. Of God, That tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, which Adam and Eve were driven out of when they sinned, and the cherub was set there with a flaming sword to keep them away from that tree of life, which was the tree that would bring eternal life. That tree was taken up and it was planted in the paradise of God. Revelation chapter 22, you can read about it. And he's saying there, essentially in this promise, to you who overcome, to you of faith, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life. Enjoy eternal life with me in the paradise of God. And then there's an admonition here at the beginning of verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is not limited to the church in Ephesus. It's directed to anyone in any age who finds that he's left his first love because it's addressed, if you'll notice, to the churches, not the church, not just Ephesus. It's written to the churches. Any church that's like Ephesus fits into this category. It's to the churches. And then if you look more specifically, it's not just a letter to a church in general. It's directed to individuals because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So it's written to any church that's like Ephesus, and it's written to any individual who is like the members in the church at Ephesus who have left their first love. I think there are some sitting here this morning who need to hear this message. And Christianity, for you, is just a performance. And you just go through the motions. You're saved. One time you made a decision to trust Christ, but the reality of that relationship is not fresh. And if you're honest, you would have to say that it's not vital and it's not vibrant. And you do your little bit, but there's no real, fervent, warm, dynamic love in your life that compels you to go out and reach people with the gospel. There's no burning heart, and there's no hungering soul, and there's no thirst for God. You know what happened? You left your first love. You got away from the fire. You're still busy, but you're cold. And Jesus is calling to you this morning to hear His message to the church that's left its first love. And Jesus has got a message for you today. He says, I want you to remember how it used to be, and I want you to repent, and I want you to repeat the first deeds." Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You today for Your Word. And we thank you for this personal message from the Lord Jesus that really meets us where we're at. And Lord, help us to realize that all of the Bible truth and all of the obedience and all of the service that we do can't hide the fact that we don't have a vibrant, fresh, real love relationship with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who find ourselves in that situation this morning that we might truly remember how it was and that we might truly come to the point of repentance and that we might begin to do the first de- deeds over again, that we might enjoy that fresh and vibrant and real relationship in walking in love with you, we pray in Jesus' name.